You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey everybody, CJ here. Welcome back to the Dangerous History Podcast. And in this episode, I'm going to be giving a largely off-the-cuff stream of consciousness kind of review and thoughts on the recently released 2023 film Oppenheimer, of course directed by Christopher Nolan, that was just released in the U.S., I believe, last Friday when I saw it. But anyway, I've been working on a lot of stuff behind the scenes lately, and in terms of big upcoming podcast episodes, I've shifted increasingly a lot of my attention and time to the next Woodrow Wilson episode, which, if memory serves, will be part 11, and this will be the episode of the Woodrow Wilson series, one of the most important in the entire series, by the way. This is going to be the episode dealing with the Wilson administration during the period of alleged American neutrality in World War I. So from the time the war broke out in the summer of 1914 until Wilson finally got the United States fully and officially into it in the spring of 1917. So for almost three years, World War I was grinding on and the U.S. government was nominally neutral, but of course in reality... In many, many ways, it was not. And you've already gotten some taste of this, if you can recall the episode I did approximately a year ago on British propaganda operations in the United States during that same period, 1914 to 1917, you already got somewhat of a taste of the ways in which the American establishment was never really neutral in that war, including Wilson himself, by the way. But, um, I do just want to say, though, before I get into talking about Oppenheimer, so anyway, um, just, you know, in general, aside from all the personal and family stuff I've been dealing with lately, I've also been doing a lot of work on that and some other things behind the scenes, including still the Woodrow Wilson Banana Wars 
bonus episode still in the works. But anyway, um, you may or may not have already heard it in my voice up until now, but I am suffering from some kind of a nasty little cold that I caught over the weekend. So I'm recording this on Monday, July 24th. And it was back on Friday the 21st that I went and saw Oppenheimer. And that evening, actually, you know, while I was at dinner and then the movie with my wife, I was starting to feel sick. And it got much worse. Uh, The next day, Saturday, was the worst day, you know, so far, knock on wood. And then I've been feeling a tiny bit better each day since Saturday. So a tiny bit better Sunday, a tiny bit better still today, Monday, but um, yeah, I'm still a bit hoarse and I'm still a bit exhausted, honestly. It's been, you know, far as I know, it's just a cold. I really don't think it's the flu. If it is COVID, it's a very mild variant, but I don't really care at this point to even take a test. But as colds go, this is the worst cold I've had in a while. So kind of taking the wind out of my sails a little bit, but I'm doing my best to soldier on despite it. So anyway, Oppenheimer is, as far as I can recall, the first film that I've actually bothered to go to the theaters to see since Top Gun Maverick. I'm pretty sure that was the last time I went to a movie theater to see something. And as you know, if you follow my work and have for a while, I'm pretty negative on the vast majority of big budget Hollywood films and TV productions, really for like the last eight years or so at this point, it's been bad. Almost every big budget TV and movie production since, I don't know, 2015, 2016, something like that, has been just woke propaganda nonstop. And, you know, the occasional big budget movie that isn't seems to make a lot of money, but then Hollywood doesn't seem to learn any lessons from these sorts of things, you know, films like Top Gun Maverick or Spider-Man No Way Home. Like, why do these films kill it? And films like Octogenarian Jones and The Insufferable Mary Sue lose, you know, literally hundreds of millions of dollars, right? But anyway, um, Oppenheimer is an historical biopic about J. Robert Oppenheimer, the physicist who was the head scientist in charge of the Manhattan Project during World War II to create the atomic bomb. Directed by Christopher Nolan, without doubt, one of the most interesting directors still active these days, and one of very few auteurs still remaining active in movie making. You could maybe say... Scorsese, I don't know, is he still active? Uh, Has he done anything? Has he been working on anything since The Irishman? I don't know. Quentin Tarantino, who claims he's only going to direct one more movie and then that's it. Nolan, and really there's no one else I can think of off the top of my head at the moment, who in terms of significant feature film making is at that level where they are still able to really kind of creatively control their productions because they just have so much pull and so much success behind them that they can kind of do what they want. You know, maybe James Cameron you could throw into that category as well as a guy who can still be a director in that kind of 1970s auteur sense of having a huge amount of creative independence and control. 
So Killian Murphy stars in the film as J. Robert Oppenheimer. And he's been in a lot of Nolan's films, but he's never been the main star, the leading man, as he is in this film. And he is, I believe, perfectly cast. He already bears a lot of resemblance to Oppenheimer. Kind of a slim, gaunt, but handsome guy with dark hair, fair skin, and piercing blue eyes. And in the film, he sounds a lot like Oppenheimer, too. At least, you know, the handful of film and audio recordings of Oppenheimer that I've seen. Um, Murphy does a good job of sounding like him in addition to looking like him and really turns in an absolutely astounding performance. I would say that Murphy deserves for sure a nomination for best actor for his performance as Oppenheimer. And, you know, unless something else comes out during the remainder of 2023 with an even more impressive performance, which seems unlikely in my opinion, but unless that happens, he would be my pick. If I was the god of Hollywood awards, he would be my pick for Best Actor Oscar for 2023. And honestly, Nolan would probably be my pick for Best Director for this film for 2023. Again, unless something else comes along in the next few months of this year that just, you know, blows me away even more. Those would be my picks. Now, of course, Christopher Nolan and Killian Murphy may or may not be nominated this year for an Oscar, but I would be shocked if either, let alone both of them, won simply because they have the original sins of being straight white men. And in today's Hollywood, it's not about merit. It's not about the quality of your work. It's about do you check enough woke diversity boxes and, you know, do you have all the right political credentials and whatever like that? And so, as you may know, if you follow this sort of thing, the Academy has actually put out, I think just within the last few months, they put out some statements and things where they basically explicitly said they're going to factor in woke diversity points massively when it comes to who gets nominated and chosen for Oscars. You know, they've basically said that they're doing kind of like the equivalent of a quota system where, you know, your your actors have to check diversity boxes and if they don't, by God, your film better in terms of the crew and the, you know, directors and whatever like that. And basically, they've all but said, like, to hell with meritocracy. We're just going to go with whoever checks off woke diversity boxes, and that's who's going to get awards in film. So we'll see. Maybe I'll be wrong, and one or both of those guys will win Oscars for what they did in this film, but I would be surprised. They're probably going to give it to people that check more intersectional diversity boxes and didn't come anywhere close to performing anywhere, you know, nearly as well as Nolan did or Murphy did in regard to Oppenheimer. And there's a huge amount of big name stars in this movie, a lot of relatively minor roles even that normally would be played by character actors, you know, who the sorts of actors and actresses that when you see them, you're like, oh yeah, that person, they were in some stuff, but you know, you may not know their name and you know, they're not super famous, but I think in part because Nolan is one of those few directors that still has that pull and that prestige with 
Hollywood people, he's able to kind of like with Tarantino in something like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he's able to get big name actors and actresses in his movie, even for the relatively modest roles. And I think he's even able to do it oftentimes paying them less money than they typically get, just because so many people want to be in a Christopher Nolan movie. So anyway, in addition to Murphy as Oppenheimer, Emily Blunt plays his wife, Kitty Oppenheimer. Matt Damon plays General Leslie Groves, who was the U.S. military officer who first was in charge of constructing the Pentagon, which I did not realize, but the movie mentions. And then, I guess because of his success in supervising construction of the Pentagon, he got put in charge of being you know, the military supervisor of the Manhattan Project, and then Oppenheimer got put in charge of the scientists, of being, you know, the head scientist of the project. Aside from that, other big names in the film would be Robert Downey Jr. as Louis Strauss, and um, plot spoiler warning at this point, if you're not familiar with this story, Strauss ultimately ends up being the antagonist of the film. This isn't obvious in kind of the first third or so of the film, at least. Louis Strauss was a very interesting guy. He was a businessman, I believe, of German-Jewish background, kind of an atypical Jewish-American of his generation in that I think he was one of those people whose family came kind of earlier than most Jewish immigrants to the United States. I think his family came in like the 1840s and ended up in Virginia. So, you know, kind of different types of people than the later big waves of Jewish immigration in the later 19th and early 20th century coming from places like Russia and Eastern Europe. And those Jews mostly ended up in the big northern cities, whereas some of the earlier, you know, 1840s-ish Jewish immigrants spread out in various parts of the country. And Louis Strauss's family, I believe, owned a shoe factory, if I remember right. And so he had some business background. He also at one point worked for the major investment firm of Kuhn Loeb and Company, whom longtime DHP listeners may remember me mentioning as part of an alliance against J.P. Morgan around the turn of the last century in terms of battling in both the financial and political worlds. So you had the House of Morgan on one side and then the Harriman Kuhn Loeb Rockefeller alliance on the other side. And this sort of characterized American power elite politics at the highest levels from about the 1880s or 90s up through World War II. So he's connected to the Harriman Kuhn Loeb Rockefeller crowd. And because of that, even though Strauss was a Republican, he ended up working important jobs in Democratic administrations, including those of FDR and Harry Truman. Florence Pugh plays a character who is a female communist with whom Oppenheimer has an affair. Josh Hartnett, who seems to be coming back into acting. I've seen him in a few things lately and haven't seen him in a while, which I like. I've always thought Josh Hartnett is a good uh, actor. He plays um, another scientist named Ernest Lawrence that Oppenheimer works with. Casey Affleck, Ben Affleck's brother, plays Boris Pash, who is an army officer and um, even a more interesting character than this movie lets on. I actually coincidentally 
just happened to encounter him recently while reading JFK and the Unspeakable by James Douglas. And Boris Pash may have had some involvement in the JFK assassination. We'll see. I'm not yet quite done with reading JFK and the Unspeakable. I'm trying to get it done for our next DHP book club discussion in several days. But Boris Pash, or Posh, however you say it, was a guy who his father, I believe, was a Russian Orthodox bishop who had come to the United States in the early 20th century and then moved back and took his family with him, including young Boris. And so Boris Posh actually served in the white or anti-communist Russian forces during the Russian Civil War. His father, as an Orthodox bishop, you know, very much anti-communist. And so Posh later, after the Bolsheviks won in Russia, ended up back in the United States and um, served in the U.S. military starting in World War II. And he was in army intelligence. And in the early days of the Cold War, of course, as a guy with you know, about as strong of anti-communist credentials as you can get, right? He literally fought against the Bolsheviks in the Russian Civil War. He ended up having a prominent role in the early Cold War. And in particular, he was in charge of a special secret CIA kind of unit or program known as PB7. And in this, he was basically working for the CIA. He was sort of like the Fletcher Prouty or Donald Sutherland character from Oliver Stone's JFK. He was sort of like that guy in that he was an army officer, army intelligence in his case, but he actually was working for the CIA in a lot of his career. And when he was running this thing called PB7, my understanding is this was actually a CIA thing, and it was a wet work unit. It was a unit specifically set up to do things like assassinations, kidnapping, sabotage, you know, dirty work, typically illegal and, you know, definitely immoral in most cases. And my understanding is that this was a top secret thing that nobody knew about outside the intelligence community, so-called, until the church committee hearings in the 1970s. But very interesting historical figure that I really didn't know about. Somehow I had never bumped into the name or never noted it until, you know, just in the last few days I happened to see this movie and happened to bump into him in the book JFK and the Unspeakable. But seems like at least a possibility that Boris Posh might have, you know, that he and his unit might have had something to do with whacking JFK, at least potentially. But he has a a minor role here as somebody who is very much opposed to Oppenheimer. Um, Anyway, number of other uh, big name actors and actresses playing various parts in the movie. But those are, I think, the big roles. The only other one I'll mention here is Gary Oldman has a brief appearance as Harry Truman. And I felt like Oldman as Harry Truman wasn't quite right. I felt like they did a good job with makeup and everything, making him look a lot like Harry Truman. But something about how his voice and mannerisms were, I felt like he didn't really sound enough like Truman when he talked. But maybe that's just me. So the movie has multiple timelines going. It's 
kind of typical of Christopher Nolan in that it is non-linear time. It kind of jumps around. It also switches between black and white in color, and it's kind of tough to figure out exactly what the significance of those changes between black and white and color are supposed to be. You know, typically in a movie, if there's some scenes in black and white in a movie that's otherwise color, I think more often than not, what happens is that the black and white scenes are supposed to be flashbacks of some earlier events, whereas the color is supposed to be, you know, present time, so to speak. But in Oppenheimer, that's clearly not the case, because there's clearly lots of scenes in black and white that take place after some of the other scenes that are in color. And I've heard a couple different things as to what the significance of black and white versus color is supposed to be in this film. I read a short little article online that claimed that the scenes that were in color were supposed to be from Oppenheimer's point of view. And the scenes that were in black and white were supposed to be from Louis Strauss's point of view. But then I also saw an interview with Christopher Nolan, which my understanding is he doesn't give very many, many, uh, very many interviews. But um, in this interview, I think Nolan said what he meant with the difference between color and black and white in the movie was that the scenes, I think he said the scenes that were in black and white were scenes that objectively happened and happened as depicted, whereas the scenes in color were more like subjective, you know, a particular character, usually Oppenheimer's perception of what had happened. So, you know, for whatever that's worth or whatever that means. And I could see how in this particular movie, I followed it pretty well because I'm at least somewhat familiar with a lot of the history of this stuff. But I can see how if you're not very familiar with kind of World War II, Manhattan Project, Oppenheimer, early Cold War, and all kinds of you know stuff related to that, I can see how you might be confused by the jumping back and forth in time and the fact that it's not a clear cut, um, you know, black and white means we're back in time and color means we're in the present day of the story. And I haven't read or heard very many reviews of this film yet. I didn't want them to color my own take. But I did um, happen to watch just yesterday, uh, Red Letter Media put out a review of Oppenheimer. And one of the Red Letter Media guys said that he actually thought this is a rare case where a Nolan movie that uses nonlinear time might actually be better if it had just been done in straight chronological order. And... I'm kind of inclined to agree with this particular movie. Like, if even I had a little bit of trouble sometimes keeping track of where we were in time, then I would imagine someone with little to no familiarity of the history behind this movie would have even more trouble. And so it it might have made the movie a little bit easier to follow, to just do straight chronological, maybe have a few flashbacks to some things, but, you know, not as many and not, you know, hopping uh, back and forth between multiple timelines. Because the film, um, the early part of the film shows Oppenheimer as a student, very young, and a somewhat notorious incident where he actually tried to poison his professor at um, Oxford or wherever the heck he was at the time. Which is kind of disturbing when you think about it, you know, that this guy who later became the head of the A-bomb program actually tried to kill one of his professors that he didn't like. And um, I think Oppenheimer had even more issues beyond just that that were not depicted in the film. Like, I think he had more serious mental health issues 
than the film even lets on. And um, memory serves, I think he was actually diagnosed as schizophrenic at some point. But uh, whether that's the case or not, like he clearly had a lot of mental baggage. He clearly was like a troubled genius and had a lot of personal, you know, personality flaws. He was a womanizer and, you know, kind of a narcissist and, um, you know, definitely had some issues. But anyway, so there's a little bit on Oppenheimer as a student and kind of starting out as a professor of theoretical physics in the United States in the 1930s. And then there's the timeline of him getting recruited by Groves to work on the Manhattan Project and him putting together the Manhattan Project. And um, a lot of people seem to think like that's the best part of the film, you know, the most uh, interesting and easy and um, fun to follow kind of part of the film. And, you know, that deals with a lot of the events and conflicts and things that ultimately led up to the successful Trinity A-bomb test and then to the A-bombings of Japan. And then on top of that, there's a timeline of in the mid-1950s, there were investigations and hearings on, and I don't think these were public at the time, although I could be wrong about that, but um, maybe some of it, you know, some of the information was leaked to the public. But hearings, uh, internal government hearings on whether or not Oppenheimer should be allowed to keep his security clearance with the U.S. government in the early to mid-1950s. And so if you don't know, Oppenheimer was the guy who was the scientist in charge of the Manhattan Project, developed the A-bomb, but he ended up ultimately having some serious crises of conscience over, you know, what the bomb did when it was dropped on people. And he became a strong advocate of trying to have some sort of arms control agreements between the U.S. and USSR to limit nuclear weapons after World War II. And when in the late 1940s, the U.S. government decided that it was going to develop H-bombs as the next big thing, you know, approximately a thousand times more potent than an A-bomb, Oppenheimer not only refused to work on the H-bomb project, but he vocally opposed it. And so... The idea is in part that he's um, being investigated and ultimately being stripped of his top secret clearance or whatever as retribution for daring to publicly speak out and not only express reservations and regrets about the A-bombings of Japan, but also to speak out against the U.S. government developing H-bombs, that that was part of why he was targeted to, you know, be kind of character assassinated via the mechanism of having his security clearance stripped because, you know, as far as I know, he hadn't committed any crimes that he could be investigated for. But then also, as the film depicts, that partly, too, that this was Louis Strauss, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, um, who, by the way, I, th I think I forgot to mention before, he eventually became an admiral in kind of an unusual way. I don't know quite all the details, but basically... I think he had wanted to join the U.S. military pretty early as a young man, Louis Strauss, and he was, I believe, exempted for some sort of medical reason. And he later, though, got commissioned in the U.S. Navy as some sort of like a supply of munitions type of job. I think he worked with the Bureau of Ordnance or something like that, and he ultimately got the rank of admiral in the U.S. Navy. 
for his work at the Bureau of Ordnance. And then in the aftermath of World War II, Louis Strauss is made the head of the, the first head of the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission. And this was where Louis Strauss first came into conflict, contact and then conflict with Oppenheimer. Although, as depicted in the movie, he kind of continues for a while to pose as Oppenheimer's friend, when in reality, he's the main guy behind plotting to have Oppenheimer investigated and stripped of his security clearance. And the film strongly suggests that a lot of it also was personal, that Oppenheimer had kind of embarrassed Strauss at one point in some hearings, and so Strauss decided to just take revenge on Oppenheimer. And that, combined with Oppenheimer having, you know, started to speak out against H-bombs and whatever, meant that the establishment was basically ready to throw him under the bus. Because Oppenheimer, he had left-wing leanings. All the evidence is that he himself was never a communist. But he had lots of friends and even family members, I believe his brother, who were at various points members of the Communist Party of the United States. And, um, you know, at least one of the women he had affairs with, as depicted in the film, was herself a communist activist. And his wife had some previous, I think she kind of stopped after they married, but his wife also had some Communist Party, you know, connections in her past and everything like that. And during World War II, you know, the U.S. was allied with the Soviets, and there was just the desperation of the war, you know, to try and get the A-bomb before any of the Axis powers did. And so, as a result, at that time, the U.S. government was totally willing to largely overlook Oppenheimer's political baggage, that he was a left-winger, that he was at least somewhat sympathetic to communism, even though he wasn't a full communist himself, that he had all these connections in his past. They were willing to overlook that because they thought, well, he's the only guy who can successfully oversee this project to build an A-bomb. And, you know, had he remained on board as a team player the way someone like Edward Teller did in the early Cold War, he might have remained, you know, unmolested by the U.S. establishment. But because he started to turn against the whole idea of continuing to advance nuclear weapons and all that, they decided, all right, now it's time to you know, pull all these skeletons out of his closet, try and throw him under the bus and, um, you know, degrade him, blacklist him, whatever. So another timeline is these hearings that Oppenheimer has to go through regarding his security clearance and all the investigations and digging up all the dirt on him and skeletons in his closet. And then the last main timeline of the story is in the late 1950s, Louis Strauss was nominated by the Eisenhower administration to be Secretary of Commerce. And ultimately, I guess the Oppenheimer and pro-Oppenheimer people got their revenge against Strauss in that they're ultimately able to get his nomination to be Secretary of Commerce blocked by the Senate. He He lost being confirmed to that post by a handful of votes. So anyway, those are the three main timelines that the story alternates between. So you've got Oppenheimer. Um, you know, there's a little bit of him pre-World War II, but mostly it's uh, the three main timelines being Oppenheimer during World War II, working on the Manhattan Project, Oppenheimer in the mid-50s being investigated and getting his clearance ultimately revoked, and then late 50s, Strauss being up for Commerce Secretary and ultimately losing that effort. And the film, if I remember right, ends with mentioning that in the late 60s, maybe it was the early 60s, I forget, 
Oppenheimer got um, some sort of ward. Oh, and I forgot to mention, one of the big things that supposedly pissed off Strauss towards Oppenheimer was that when Strauss first brought Oppenheimer in to work as part of the Atomic Energy Commission, Einstein was there, and there's a scene where Oppenheimer and Einstein have a brief private conversation out of earshot of Strauss, and then after the conversation, Einstein refuses to acknowledge Strauss, refuses to say anything to him, look him in the eye, just kind of walks away. And Strauss interprets this as that Oppenheimer said something negative about him, Strauss, to Einstein. And uh, it's ultimately revealed towards the end of the film that that's not what the conversation was even about, that the conversation was actually more of like a, a deeper philosophical conversation about like, you know, what have you done by helping to create atomic weapons? So I will say I do not claim to be an expert on Oppenheimer himself or his life or anything like that. I've never read an actual biography of Oppenheimer. From what I've read, the main source that Nolan used, because he also wrote this movie in addition to directing it, most of his movies he's written and directed, that the main source that Nolan used in writing this film was a biography of Oppenheimer from 2005 called American Prometheus. And the authors of that are Kai Bird and Martin Sherwin. Now, Martin Sherwin does not ring any bells with me as an author, but Kai Bird I very much remember. Kai Bird is one of the um, author, editors, whatever, of a very interesting and important book called, uh, it's either Hiroshima's Shadow or In Hiroshima's Shadow, I forget which, but this was a big source for me back when I was working on my episode on the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I'll try to remember to throw a link in the show notes of this episode to that one in case you've never heard it, because it was from years ago. But anyway, Hiroshima's Shadow, which came out on, I believe, the 50th anniversary of the A-bombing, so 1995. Hiroshima's Shadow was a collection of historical essays and primary source excerpts, and it's mostly very, very anti atomic bombing, very much opposed to dropping the A-bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, very skeptical of why that was done and how necessary that really was. And so you can see this a bit in the film. This film, I think, is pretty opposed to the dropping of those A-bombs. They explicitly mention more than once that Japan was, you know, about to fall over of exhaustion by mid-1945, that People kind of knew they were on their last legs and were about to crack anyway, and so it's at least heavily implied that the bombings weren't really necessary to get a surrender, which I agree with. And in addition to that, the film in general is very unflattering in its depiction of politicians. Politicians are largely depicted as being very selfishly motivated in a lot of ways, and being vindictive, and also being just kind of not that smart or deep, just being kind of shallow. There's depiction of a real encounter where in, I guess, the late 1940s, Oppenheimer was invited to the White House. Might have been not long in the aftermath of World War II ending. He was invited to the White House and met President Truman, and basically Oppenheimer was already starting to express regret and moral qualms about having created the A-bomb. 
And Truman was completely dismissive. Truman basically was like, hey, you shouldn't feel any guilt because I dropped that bomb. And of course, he was very um, unreflecting about it, very like proud of it and whatever. And um, after talking with Oppenheimer briefly, Truman says something like, you know, get this sissy out of my office. Don't let her don't ever let him come back in. Something like that, which is what he actually said. So that's in the film. And even things like they depict some of the discussion about where to drop the first A-bomb. And, you know, somebody suggests Kyoto and um, one of the government, you know, officials, I forget which, says something like, well, you know, I honeymoon in Kyoto and it's kind of a pretty city, so let's nuke somewhere else. And it just shows you like that these these people, they're no better than any of us. They're just as selfish and imperfect and vain and superficial, if not even worse than most of us regular folks who are not politicians and government, deep state kind of commanders and whatever. But anyway, let me go ahead and just give my overall kind of thoughts and take on the movie, and then we'll wrap it up because this is going to be a relatively brief episode, and in case you couldn't tell, it's basically off the cuff. I have no real notes here. I'm just kind of winging it stream of consciousness style. And like I said, I'm still a bit sick, so I'm doing my best here. But my overall take on the movie is mostly positive. Like I said, I'm not an expert on Oppenheimer and all the details of his life and career. I know most of the main points, I think, from having read various books about World War II, the Manhattan Project, the early Cold War, the developing of A and H bombs. If memory serves, there was a lot about both Oppenheimer and Edward Teller in the book The 50s by David Halberstam, which I read a long time ago, um, but I very much enjoyed and think is worth reading. And a number of other miscellaneous books on the Cold War and, you know, the development of nuclear weapons and whatever that I've read. So, you know, I'm not an expert to where I can nitpick every last detail of this movie and tell you if every last little detail was historically accurate or not. But I will say that based on what I do know, I do think this movie is pretty historically sound. And, you know, the fact that Nolan's main source for the movie was a biography of Oppenheimer, one of whose authors was Kai Bird, is, you know, kind of encouraging to me and probably explains why the movie seems to be historically pretty sound. My two main criticisms of the movie are, number one, it might have been better off just in linear chronological time. Or if the switches between timelines had been done, maybe not as many times, and, you know, maybe if the switching between black and white and color film had made a little bit more sense while I was watching the movie without having to, you know, go read an article about what it's supposed to mean. So yeah, if even I occasionally was losing track of, you know, which timeline we were on at various points in the movie, then I would imagine someone with little or no prior historical knowledge of this stuff would probably be pretty darn confused. And um, so that's one thing is that the nonlinear time here needed to be, in my opinion, either reduced or just undone, just go to straight, you know, chronological timeline. And um, the second complaint, which I've heard from a few other people as well, is that the movie may have been too long. It was a bit over three hours, I think. And, um, you know, I think this movie deserved to be a long movie for sure. But I feel like they probably could have whittled down maybe a half hour of it and still told the same story quite effectively. Maybe even more so because, you know, more concise. 
So those are my two main complaints. The other complaints, again, I haven't read or watched too many reviews of this, but I've, I've encountered a few here and there. And another complaint um, or, or type of complaint I've seen in various forms is people criticizing it for things it left out. And this is always a tricky criticism to make when you're criticizing either a movie or a book or whatever, which is to criticize things that were left out of the story. Now, I'm not saying that this is never a valid thing to point out, but I think there's limits because it's easy if you start criticizing a book or movie for things they left out, it's easy to end up basically criticizing someone for not having written a different story or made a different movie, right? So let me just try and give you hypothetical examples to illustrate what I mean. Of, of what I would consider kind of valid and invalid forms of this criticism of, you know, oh, you left this important thing out or you should have included this important aspect of the story you're telling. And we'll use as an example one thing that I'm in the middle of, which is telling the story of Woodrow Wilson's life and career and all of his horrific legacy. And Let's say I told this long, detailed, you know, many-hour story of Woodrow Wilson's life and career, and let's say I didn't mention World War I at all. Just never came up. Like, I mentioned every other aspect of his life and career, but nothing related to World War I. And somebody said, hey, you just spent, you know, 20 hours or whatever telling us the story and multiple years of research and work telling us the story of Woodrow Wilson, and you left out World War I one of the biggest, you know, parts of his career. Arguably the defining thing of his presidency more than anything else. And in my mind, that would be a valid criticism of, hey, you left this out. Like, you clearly left out something really important to the story that you were telling. Because my kind of stated and implied goal in that case is to tell the story of the life and career of Woodrow Wilson. And so, you know, if I left out a major part of that story that any reasonable person would agree should be a major part of that story, that's a problem and that's a valid criticism. And we can think of other examples related to that example um, that we might agree as well. Like, what if I told the, you know, super detailed story of Woodrow Wilson's life and career and never mentioned Colonel Edward House and Wilson's relationship with him, right? Most reasonable people, again, would say, like, that's a valid criticism to say, hey, you never even mentioned Colonel House. He's a big part of this story. But, at some point, it can go over the line into you're criticizing someone for not telling a different story altogether. Or for not going into huge detail on something that a reasonable person might at least be willing to say doesn't need to be there. So let's say when I do, you know, when I finish wrap, wrapping up uh, working on my Woodrow Wilson's Banana Wars bonus episode, let's say... Someone criticizes that when it comes out and says, you didn't give nearly enough detail and backstory on the Mexican Civil War into which Woodrow Wilson intervened, let's say. And let's say I did give some context and background, and I'm planning on giving some context and background, the, the very kind of basic bullet points of what was going on in Mexico that caused Wilson to ultimately intervene. And, you know, I'm sure I'll have to give some Cliff Notes versions of the civil war and political crises that were happening. But I'm also going to try and keep that relatively concise and simple and easy to follow. 
Why? Well, number one, because there's only so much time. You know, this is one bonus episode. It'll probably end up being several hours, but even so, there's one bonus episode. The focus of the story is not, you know, going back in Mexican history for a hundred years to try and trace all of the things that led up to Mexico having a civil war in the early 20th century. My goal is to focus on Woodrow Wilson's interventionist policies. Now, as part of that story, I'm going to have to mention a little bit of the context and background of what was going on in Mexico at the time, but I think it is a valid and reasonable storytelling choice to decide to be kind of light on that so that I can devote much more space and resources of the story to specifically Woodrow Wilson's actual interventions and policies as president in regard to Mexico and the other places on the receiving end of his interventionism. You see, so by saying, oh, you should have spent way more time in detail talking about all the long roots of the Mexican conflict that Wilson intervened in, in my view, that's that's an invalid criticism. That's saying you should have just done a history podcast episode on the history of Mexico leading up to the early 20th century civil war. My response to a criticism like I outlined would be, well, you know, if I ever do, which is unlikely because it's just not, you know, one of my areas of particular expertise or interest. But if I ever do a history of Mexico, you know, podcast series or whatever, that'd be very valid if I didn't include what you're saying. But, you know, this podcast episode is about Woodrow Wilson's Banana Wars. So, yeah, it's fine, in my opinion, that I just gave the Cliff Notes version of the lead-up to the Mexican Civil War. So, I've seen some different um, versions of this. I've seen some people criticizing the Oppenheimer movie for not giving more background on um, some of the other negative aspects of Oppenheimer's personality and, you know, not-so-admirable things he did um, growing up, you know, not maybe giving more attention to his mental health issues, not maybe giving attention to other uh, morally questionable actions and things um, throughout his life. And, you know, that's one of those things where I feel like, oh, the movie's already three hours. And, um, you know, he did include the attempted poisoning of his professor as one of the very first things that happens in the movie. So, you know, I don't know how much um, other incidents and things could have been added without taking away from the kind of meat of the story, which is about the development of the A-bomb, um, Oppenheimer being thrown under the bus in the early 50s, and then somewhat getting revenge by having Louis Strauss's cabinet nomination declined by the Senate. Another criticism I've seen, and this one seems to be coming more from like the woke left crowd, is oh, the movie's all about a white man feeling guilty and doesn't depict, you know, the hundreds of thousands of non-white people getting incinerated by his bomb. And it's not that I'm not at all sympathetic to that, um, at least if you set aside the kind of, like, woke way of expressing it. Like, I'm very much retroactively opposed to having dropped those two A-bombs on Japan. Like, if I could wave a magic wand and undo that that happened, I would. And if I was around and was a top, you know, advisor to President Truman at the time, I would have advised against dropping those bombs. But this is a biographical historical feature film. This is a historical biopic. And they did mention the death and destruction in various ways. And they did depict Oppenheimer being disturbed by, you know, images and information about what his creation had done. 
And at the end of the day, this film is a biopic and it is ultimately more than anything else, really a character study. And so while I certainly agree that the American people then and now need to be confronted with the ugly truth of their government's foreign policy actions in their name, that the American people should see more of what it looks like, you know, not just when a a bomb is dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki almost 80 years ago, but that they also should see the results of more recent American wars and interventions and drone strikes and whatever. So I'm very sympathetic to the idea that we need to see that the American people in particular need to see more what it actually looks like, the policies that their oligarchs enact around the world in their name, that they need to see the ugly truth. But at the same time, I understand this is a biopic and a character study. So to criticize the movie for not being about the A-bombings and what it did to the people themselves. Like, in my view, that's a different movie. And I would actually be in favor of a movie like that being made. I I would very much be in favor of a high-quality, well-made Hollywood movie that depicts more of the truth of what actually happened both the political context of the decision made to drop those bombs and then also what those bombs actually did to the people that they, you know, blew up on. I'd be totally in favor of that movie being made. But this isn't that movie, and it's not claiming to be. It's it's a biopic. It is a character study. I thought this was a very, very well-made movie in every technical sense, you know, meticulously uh, written and directed as is typical of Nolan and, you know, all of the performances of the actors and actresses are superb. And, you know, it is an excellent movie from the standpoint of filmmaking craft. I honestly have no desire, maybe I'll change my mind years down the road, but I have no desire to see the movie again. Uh, In my view, it is not one of those movies that would be enjoyable to watch repeatedly. I may rewatch it at some point just to try and catch a little bit more of the historical details and things if it's ever relevant to something I'm researching or something I'm trying to wrap my head around. But in terms of just for personal enjoyment, I don't think this is a movie I would choose to watch again. It's very heavy. It's good, but it's, you know, not the happiest subject matter. It's it's a very heavy movie and it's long. So for those reasons, it's not a movie I would watch repeatedly, but I think it's worth seeing for sure at least once. Um, to anybody who likes high-quality movies, but especially if you've got any interest in sort of World War II, Manhattan Project, early Cold War, all that stuff. And I will just say that, you know, these days and for the past bunch of years, it's always so refreshing and nice to see a new movie that isn't jammed full of way, way, way blatant, obvious, super-duper-duper extra-on-the-nose current-day politics, especially featuring wokeism and TDS. Like, it's nice to watch a movie that's about what it's about, that's not a barely-concealed metaphor for Trump or wokeism or immigration policy and open borders and whatever. It's nice to just see a movie that's largely about what it's about. Now, there's all kinds of potential implications of this movie for current day politics, for sure. But Nolan, to his credit, is not heavy-handed 
in how he presents this. There's a lot of complexity and subtlety and contradictions in this movie and its primary characters. And I appreciate that. It's nice to have a movie, again, where there's that complexity, where the writer and director is not bludgeoning you with some super on-the-nose didactic message about current-day politics, where there's at least potentially different ways you could interpret the film and its potential implications for modern-day politics. And I appreciated that, that, you know, I felt, I didn't feel like I was being lectured to and finger-wagged at by some woke evangelical preacher or something. I'll also say that especially as the Russo-Ukrainian-American-backed uh, proxy war continues to roll on and be a dangerous powder keg that could easily get out of hand at a moment's notice, whether on purpose or by accident, it is refreshing to see a major reminder in mainstream media, this of course being entertainment media, but a big reminder to average people who don't think about and pay attention to these things that hey, nuclear weapons are really, really dangerous, and we don't want them to ever be used again on actual people. And so for that reason, I think the film is important and valuable, just to remind people of nukes and the way the movie ends on a note that sort of lends itself to that message. And in addition to that, I appreciate the way the movie portrays politicians and government officials and military officers in a rather cynical and unsentimental light. And many of them come off not looking very good. And I appreciate that. And in general, I appreciate that this is a biopic that does not try to be a hagiography for its subject. So often it seems like historical biopics try to make whatever is their protagonist into some sort of a hero and to simplify the complexity that real people usually exhibit in real life. And this very much shows Oppenheimer as a troubled, deeply flawed, very imperfect guy, but who nonetheless also does have some kind of a conscience in a way and is troubled by what he did. So I very much appreciate all of the complexity and moral ambiguity. And this just very much felt like a movie for real grown-ups in a way that a lot of other movies over the past seven, eight years just have not, have just felt like simplified propaganda designed to appeal to dummies. So anyway, long story short, I would give Oppenheimer four and a half out of five stars. I would recommend it. I think it's worth watching if you're at all interested in the subject matter, whether in Oppenheimer himself, the Manhattan Project, World War II, the early Cold War in general, U.S. politics in the 50s, you know, any of these topics, if any of these topics are of particular interest to you, this movie is definitely worth seeing. It is a very well-made movie from a technical point of view. It's a masterpiece. I personally believe that it deserves to win some Oscars, whether it will or not, has more to do with how rigidly the Motion Picture Academy wants to adhere to their new woke quota guidelines. But, you know, that's in their hands, not mine. And given the fact that basically nobody watches the Oscars anymore anyway, unless they think Will Smith is going to smack somebody again, probably the Oscars don't matter as much as they used to even just a few years ago, let alone 20, 30 years ago. 
I will just say in closing, there were a few scenes. Um, I'm glad they resisted the attempt to be ahistorical and to make like, you know, Edward Teller a black woman and, you know, make Harry Truman a, a woman and make uh, Oppenheimer a Latin X trans person or whatever. Like, I'm glad they didn't do the stupid Disney or Netflix uh, race, gender, sexuality swaps, you know. But there were some scenes where there was a little bit of what I would consider distracting a historical artificial diversity. And, you know, it wasn't in your face. It wasn't that noticeable most of the time. But there were just a few places where there'd be like a scene of students in a classroom at, you know, the physics department of a top university in the 1940s. And like, there's multiple women and non-white guys and whatever. And, you know, I'm just sitting there going, somehow I doubt that in the 1940s, that's what a physics classroom at a major university would look like. But, you know, they didn't do any any uh, ahistorical Cleopatra-style race swaps of any of the historical main characters in the film or anything like that. So it wasn't too annoying. There were just a few times where I was like, huh, that looks a little bit... Somehow I don't think that particular place would have been that diverse in the 1940s or 1950s. But again, it was mostly just sort of like background characters and whatever. Um, so it wasn't nearly as distracting as it could have been. But, you know, not a happy movie, but a very well-made movie, and I believe important in a lot of ways. And you know what? Anything that can be done to remind normies that nuclear war is a bad thing that we shouldn't want to get into, if we can at all avoid it, that is to the good as far as I'm concerned. And just in general, anytime you can expose some of the historical American deep state and, you know, depict them in a less than flattering light, I'm always on board with it. So anyway, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my review of Oppenheimer and um, stay tuned, especially if this damn cold gets better soon. I'm working my ass off on a bunch of things, so look for a lot more stuff to come out of me in the coming weeks. Thank you for listening and take care.